it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Skip ahead about 40 seconds if the resources I've been giving bother you. There is a crisis text line set up for those suffering from anxiety or depression. Text 741741 for help. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK or 8255. If you are suffering from domestic violence, please call 1-800-799-SAFE or 7233 or dial 911. The Trevor Project has a hotline for young LGBTQ people who are struggling. Call 1-866-488-7386. Remember, you're not alone. I'll have international resources as well as these U.S. numbers in today's show notes. Southern Fried True Crime covers cases that are not suitable for young listeners, and there may also be some explicit language used. Listener discretion is advised. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 4 says, Anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Depending on which version of the Bible you read, jealousy is replaced with envy. And there is a difference. Envy is coveting what someone else has. Jealousy is fear of losing what you already have to someone else. In today's story, either of those words work. And the person who stood before it was a preacher. The Reverend Robert Nichols had been a traveling revival preacher, but recently moved his family to Sellerstown to put down roots and find a church he could also call home. He was a preacher so resolute in his faith and so committed to his congregation He withstood six years of terrorism from someone who sat in one of his pews. A powerful and corrupt man who ruled the small community. A man who lived across the street from the preacher and his family. A man whose jealousy turned to anger, fury, and then wrath. A man who had no qualms about terrifying small children or putting their lives at risk. An evil man who would destroy anyone to see his vengeance through to the brutal, bloody end. Welcome to Episode 106, Terror in Sellerstown, North Carolina. In July of 1969, Reverend Robert Nichols decided it was time to get back to his calling. He and his wife Ramona had moved back to his hometown of Mobile, Alabama, the year before, after a heartbreaking miscarriage. He worked as an electrician at a local plant. As he and Ramona healed from the emotional trauma of the loss, and Ramona rested and let her body heal. That July, right after Reverend Nichols decided to re-enter the ministry, Ramona found out she was pregnant again. According to their daughter's book, The Devil in Pew Number 7, the couple had long thought they could not have children. They were overjoyed at the second chance. While Ramona was pregnant, 
They visited friends in Lumberton, North Carolina, and the Reverend was invited to give guest sermons at a local church. The local ministers were so impressed with the gifted young preacher's passion that they invited him to visit churches in the smaller surrounding communities. He was first asked to conduct a series of revivals at a small church called the Free Welcome Holiness Church. It was located in an unincorporated community seven or eight miles from Whiteville, North Carolina. The congregation had dwindled down to about 12 people, and the local reverend was retiring and the church and community leaders wanted to bring new people in. While Robert was a gifted young preacher, his wife Ramona, equally devout, was gifted musically. She sang and played the organ. They made a striking and attractive couple, not just passionately devoted to serving God, but young and charismatic. We would think of them as a power couple in business terms. If they stayed at Free Welcome, the congregation weren't just getting the young and energetic Reverend Nichols, but also his charming and talented wife, Ramona. The Reverend was immediately offered the job after his first revival. And he and Ramona were welcomed with open arms. A parsonage was being built next door to the small red brick church and wasn't finished yet. So Robert and Ramona stayed with the retiring Reverend and his wife until their home at the parsonage was finished. Robert, also called Bob, pitched in with his carpentry skills to finish the house, and they moved in on Thanksgiving Day in 1969. Many parishioners came to the housewarming party the church threw for them in their new home. There are hints in Rebecca Nichols' Alonzo's book that there was a reason the congregation had dwindled down so much, but she doesn't say it outright. Rebecca Nichols, Bob and Ramona's miracle baby, was born the following April in 1970. And in their first year in the new church, the Reverend and his wife drew in several new parishioners. Reverend Nichols had been updating the church with paint and new carpet and 14 new pews, seven on each side. Everyone seemed overjoyed about the new life being breathed into the church. All but one person. Someone had started making threatening phone calls and sending anonymous letters. The first one was almost laughable accusing Ramona of lying, and in typed letters it read, quote, signed by more than 25 church members, neighbors, and citizens. The second letter was much more sinister. It read, You will be leaving Sellerstown, crawling or walking, running or riding, dead or alive. This may sound bad, but you will wish you had. You have brought this on your own self. Sellerstown was the name of the small unincorporated community. Located in Columbus County, the closest town was Whiteville, and it had only around 5,000 residents. Columbus County is made up of a bunch of small towns and communities. Sellerstown was home then and now to only about 50 residents. Sellerstown was just farmland and houses. Over a hundred years before the Nichols arrived in the area, Three brothers from the Sellers clan bought up land on either side of the two-mile road. It was about a thousand acres of tobacco, corn, and soybeans. And it was the kind of place where everyone didn't just know each other. They were likely related by blood or marriage. Whoever wrote that letter was embarking on a campaign of terror on the Nichols family that would last for six years. And he meant what he said. They would leave Sellerstown dead or alive. I'm going to pause now for a short commercial break. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I told you that the Reverend Nichols was giving his new church home a facelift. But it wasn't just the church building. He cleaned house and the administration as well. There was a 65-year-old man named Horry James Watts who lived across the street from the Nichols. And publicly, he seemed like a well-respected citizen and married father. He was one of five Columbus County commissioners and had served as chairman for several years. During that time, he served on boards that oversaw construction of the new Columbus County Law Enforcement Center, complete with police headquarters and a jail facility. Andy was a member of the Whitefall City School Board and the owner of Farmer's Oil and Fertilizer, also located in Whiteville. Owning a small business made him unique in Sellerstown and powerful. This was a very small community of farmers. There were no banks or businesses in Sellerstown. When farmers needed loans, they went to Whiteville, and if they were turned down, they often had no choice but to go to Horry Watts. And in that way, He served as sort of a small-town kingpin. He loaned the money to desperate people with outrageous interest rates, and when they couldn't pay, he had an assortment of musclemen to threaten anyone who was late with payments. And when they absolutely couldn't pay, Watts would make them sign over the deeds of their house and property to him. Soon he controlled most of the small community in some way, including the Free Welcome Church. Rebecca Nichols Alonzo pointed out that while he had, in her words, a stranglehold on the church, he wasn't even a member. But he came to church every Sunday and sat in the back row, where he kept an eye on all the parishioners. Alonzo said he would note any new clothing as a sign of money, and also, if someone wasn't showing up for church, he took that to mean they were avoiding him. He was a sinister presence, sitting in the back row. The seventh pew. And before Reverend Nichols took over at Free Welcome, Horry Watts reigned freely, so much so that even his wife, Ora Watts, had power. Not only was she an adult Sunday school teacher, but she served as the church's clerk, their bookkeeper. The Reverend had two problems with Ora. First of all, he didn't agree with her teachings in Sunday school, she was more fire and brimstone where he was all about God's grace. Rebecca Nichols said her father saw the conflict of belief among his members, and it disturbed him. Rebecca also noted that Horry Watts felt he had control over the church's money because of his wife's position as clerk. But CNN reporter Wayne Drash interviewed a retired ATF agent who would eventually work on the case, who put it more plainly, Horry Watts was stealing from the church. The ATF agent, Charles Mercer, said that Watts would take the collection plates from his wife, Ora, every Sunday. He would pocket most of the coins and dollar bills, and then write big checks to the church. It gave the appearance that he was making generous donations to the church, which would then add up to a few thousand dollars, and then he had a big tax write-off. The former pastor and small congregation fell under the influence of this powerful and manipulative man not just because of his donations, but also because he had plenty of church members who owed him money. But young Reverend Nichols was canny and saw exactly what Watts was up to. First, he changed how the business of the church was conducted. Nichols argued that only church members should have control over the money, and he put it to a vote. The congregation voted to turn over the business of the church to members only, meaning Mr. Horry Watts was out. Because like I said, though he showed up every Sunday, he wasn't actually a member. Now he had no say in church matters, including the construction of a new fellowship hall and additional Sunday school classrooms. Watts thought they should construct small buildings with pitched roofs 
so that they would match the original church. But Reverend Nichols wanted more room at less cost, so he opted for flat roofs. The church members voted with him. Rebecca Nichols Alonzo reports in her book that after this, Corey Watts told the Reverend, quote, If you don't need any advice, maybe you should get in your car and go back to Alabama. The young Reverend ignored him, and construction went ahead as planned. Then he went to church members for a vote on Ora Watts as Sunday school teacher. They once again sided with Nichols, voting Ora out. After all, they were the ones having to listen to her strict lessons, telling them it was a sin to cook or buy anything on a Sunday. And then they went and listened to Reverend Nichols, who preached about a loving and forgiving God. Reverend Nichols then went to church members again and had them vote in a new clerk. Ora Watts was out of two positions, and Horry Watts was out of a lot of money. He was outraged. This was the real turning point. He would intentionally make disturbances in the church. In the Reverend's journals, later used in court, he remembered that Horry Watts had stood up and shouted, You had better not tell my wife that she could not vote in the business, before complaining loudly at all the songbooks the young pastor had bought. Members of the Free Welcome Church would later tell reporters from the News Reporter and the Wilmington Morning Star that Horry Watts would cough and gasp loudly. He made faces and smacked his lips. Once, he raised his hand and then pointed at his watch, as if to tell the reverend his time was up. He thought the pastor preached too long, and when Nichols ignored him, he often got up to leave, slamming the doors, seeming to shake the whole church. The Nichols' daughter, Rebecca, said her mother often eased the tension after these scenes by smiling and waving and saying, Well, amen, or praise the Lord, before striking up a hymnal on the organ. After a while, the reverend had the old solid wood doors replaced with glass doors that closed quietly, and as hard as old Horry slammed them, they didn't shake the frames. Still, he obviously was making a scene. And the hang-up calls to the house kept coming, along with the anonymous letters, one of which arrived two days before Christmas in 1972. The Nichols family would endure dozens of menacing hang-up calls in one day. And then things went further. The family went on vacation after Christmas to visit relatives, and when they returned, they realized their home, the parsonage, had been broken into and vandalized. The telephone was ripped from the wall, and the cord was cut. It was ice cold in the house due to a broken window, and also because someone had poured water into the fuel tank of their furnace. Walking through the broken glass, Ramona Nichols soon turned on a faucet, and instead of water, Something oily oozed from the tap. The water and fuel tanks were not connected, so they soon realized someone had dumped oil in their water pump. By August of 1974, Ramona was pregnant again, and the terror campaign against the Nichols family was ramped up. In the early morning hours of August 18th, someone cut the telephone lines from outside the house and then slashed the tires on the Nichols' car. Then they shot up the mailbox and threw it in the carport. And then an unknown man climbed a telephone pole and shot out the only outside light in the backyard before another man quickly placed dynamite on the ground, lit the fuse, and ran away. Rebecca reports that she awoke at 4.30 a.m. thinking the ground was shaking. The bomb had gone off about 25 feet from her bedroom window. Her parents both ran to her room and as her mother comforted her, Robert Nichols picked up the phone to call the police, only to find the line had been cut. He had no choice but to run out in the dark to the next-door neighbor for help. He had no way of knowing if he was being watched or could be shot. He just had to call for help. Their next-door neighbor was a kindly woman named Pat Sellers. Young Becky called her Aunt Pat, even though they weren't related. The Columbus County Sheriff got there fairly quickly and a deputy sergeant, the only detective in the county, arrived soon after. Of course, they knew who had probably done this or had set it up, but there was no proof. As police searched the scene of the bomb, Reverend Nichols still had a job to do. Showing no intimidation, he conducted Sunday services just hours after his home was bombed. He was honest with the congregation and told them he would not run. He would overcome this persecution. 
Rebecca later wrote that she never found out if Horry Watts was in the pew that day, but pointed out that it would have looked bad if he had not shown up. Not only would he seem more suspicious, he would miss any effect the bombing had on the Reverend and his pregnant wife. For several months, there were no more break-ins or bombings, but the phone calls, sometimes up to 30 in one day, never stopped, and neither did the threatening letters. Rebecca also pointed out that instead of scaring away church members from free welcome, church attendance grew by leaps and bounds. Sellerstown and surrounding communities rallied to support the Reverend and his family, much to the chagrin of Horry Watts. Six months after the first bomb, at the beginning of December, when the Nichols family were having friends over, the telephone line was again cut and a bomb was set off behind the house in a field belonging to Bud Sellers, Horry Watts' brother-in-law. Reverend Nichols again had to race through the darkness to call the police at Pat Sellers' house. And the next morning, as the police were still investigating the crime scene, Horry Watts and Bud Sellers walked up to the property. Watts asked the detective if it was against the law to shoot off dynamite on your own property, and the detective told him it was. This was incredibly bold. Horry Watts had to know he was the prime suspect. It goes to show how much power he believed he held in Sellerstown, that he was above the law and could openly thumb his nose at it. He just set off a bomb behind the home of not only a preacher, but also his heavily pregnant wife and four-year-old daughter not to mention their friends, a couple with two small children, who were also terrified and lucky to have not been hurt. There had been some small reports in local newspapers, but now a reporter came to interview Reverend Nichols. He was careful in giving quotes. As his daughter would point out, he loved his church family and members of the community and did not want them to get a bad name. He told a reporter from the Fayetteville Times, quote, The church members are behind me. It's just a couple of families that want me out. They want to get the leadership of the church back, but we're not leaving. We're staying. Robert Nichols, the six foot three former football player who served in the Navy, went on to say, quote, Those boys, I know who they are, and they know who I'm talking about. Just better pray to the good Lord that I don't backslide, because I've never met a man I couldn't whip. Before his days as a preacher and after his time in the Navy, Bob Nichols had spent some time drinking and getting into bar fights. But now, as a man of God, he let Horry Watts know in a subtle way that he could whip his ass if he wanted to. When the reporter pressed him if he would go after the men himself if the law couldn't catch them, the pastor was quick to answer with a firm no. The reporter then asked when he thought it would end. Reverend Nichols said, quote, only when you read the devil's obituary, and I'm afraid that may take a few more years to happen. Ramona Nichols, seven months pregnant, took another direct approach to the press. She marched into the offices of the news reporter in Whiteville with a letter to the editor. It was called Tribute to Sellerstown, and it ran on the front page. Ramona firmly wrote that her family would stay with their church no matter what. She didn't want the community of Sellerstown besmirched because of the ongoing terror her family was suffering. She wrote, quote, We have learned much about the people of Sellerstown during the five years and one month we have lived among them. First of all, we know there are good and bad, rich and poor, intelligent and ignorant people in every corner of the earth. Not since the Garden of Eden has there been a perfect spot in the world to live. I think Ramona Nichols wasn't just protecting her town, but also proving that, like her husband, she refused to live in fear or run away. And the violence stopped until her son was born in February. Daniel Nichols was born on his parents' anniversary in 1975. There was relative peace for a few months, though Horry Watts could be seen pacing in front of their house in the late hours of the night easily recognizable with his fedora and heavy black glasses he stalked the street he even walked out there in his bathrobe remember he lived directly across the street from the Nichols the peace was broken at 1am on a June night in 1975 someone with a shotgun took several shots at the house and family car before reloading 
and aiming at Rebecca's window. Her window shattered, and bullets blew past the five-year-old's head. This time, the phone lines weren't cut, and when Reverend Nichols called, he said he had seen a man drive away from the scene, but he couldn't really describe him. The next attack almost killed five-month-old baby Daniel. On July 1st, a bomb was placed near the corner of the house, close to the children's rooms. Rebecca would remember years later the screaming as she and her parents ran from the house and neighbors came running to help. One neighbor asked where the baby was, and a dazed Ramona said, he's still in his room. Rebecca believes her mother was, quote, so unnerved from the attack that she couldn't face seeing what might have happened to her baby. I think she expected the worst and couldn't bring herself to go in there. Miraculously, the neighbor ran in and found the infant crying in his crib, surrounded by broken glass. If he had rolled over, he would have been cut. It was absolutely horrific. As the neighbor ran back outside with baby Danny, Rebecca said, quote, That's when my daddy lost it. As he had stood in his yard in the aftermath, he saw Horry Watts across the street with his friends at the edge of his driveway. When he met the reverend's eyes, he started laughing. A parishioner named James Tyree later told CNN reporter Wayne Drash that he heard Horry Watts yell, If that one didn't get you, the next one will. Bob Nichols took off across the yard, probably ready to beat the man to a pulp, and was so angry it took several men to hold him back, including Tyree, who said he told Nichols, Now is not the time, Brother Robert. Ironically, if the Reverend had touched Tory Watts, he would have been the one to go to jail that night. He later told reporters, quote, When the Lord gets ready for me to leave this church, he won't send the message by the devil. But the bombings continued. The parsonage and church were bombed six more times between November 1975 and December 1976. In September of 1975, the ATF had gotten a federal search warrant for Horry Watts' home. On November 6th, the fifth bomb exploded in the night, and on November 13th, a federal grand jury was assembled to examine evidence. Horry Watts, Bud Sellers, and six other people were subpoenaed. On November 16th, Robert Nichols was found by a highway patrol officer on the side of the road. He had wrecked his car and was incoherent. He had probably fallen asleep at the wheel. He had been due to testify before the grand jury the next morning, but was in the hospital and didn't make it. A few days later, the family moved Robert Nichols to a South Alabama hospital for observation. His heart had been damaged from stress, and he was in a deep depression. The doctor said he had a complete nervous breakdown. I honestly cannot believe he held up this long, or that Ramona did. His family was under constant siege by a vicious man who stalked their house nightly. The Reverend had to spend six weeks in the psychiatric wing of the Alabama Medical Center. And that son of a bitch, Horry Watts, signed a get well card from the Free Welcome Congregation. I'm going to pause now to hear a word from today's sponsors. A few weeks ago, I became a Thrive Market member. They are delivering organic and sustainable groceries right to my door. I've really been enjoying the Primal Market Skillet Bundles, delicious and healthy food you can just heat and eat. I've also gotten some sensational wine bundles, curated just for me. I'm picky about my wine, so that's one bundled product I'll always shop for at Thrive. And once you try it, you'll love Thrive as much as I do. As a member of Thrive Market, not only do I get the products I love, my paid membership provides a free one for someone in need. Thrive Market caters to over 70 different types of diets and values like keto, paleo, and plant-based diets, delivering the highest quality organic and sustainable essentials. I can also get everyday supplies for bath and body, kid stuff, and even vitamins. As a member, I'm saving 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices, and their carbon-neutral shipping is free on orders over $49. I really enjoy the savings on my favorite clean and organic products, 
but I also feel really good about helping support communities in need. Thrive Market has raised over $750,000 to date through their COVID-19 relief fund. Go to thrivemarket.com slash southernfried. Join today and you'll get a free gift of your choosing, up to $22 in value. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash southernfried to start your risk-free membership and get a free gift today. Thrivemarket.com slash southernfried. Many of us suffer from depression. It doesn't just interfere with your happiness, but it stifles you. You may have trouble achieving your goals. Is there something bothering you? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. They will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp has over 3,000 licensed therapists in all 50 states, treating depression, anxiety, stress, trauma, grief, and other issues that so many of us suffer from. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. The service is also available to clients worldwide. From your phone, laptop, or tablet, you can connect with a professional counselor via text, chat, phone, or video and start communicating with your counselor in under 24 hours. You can send a message to your counselor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, and you can schedule weekly sessions with your counselor by video or phone, whichever makes you feel more comfortable. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so it is easy and free to change counselors if you want to. And anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and there is even financial aid available. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com southern. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash southern. After the fifth bombing and the Reverend's nervous breakdown, the church donated a car to the Nichols family and also a trailer for them to sleep in at night. The family had relative peace until August 1st, 1976, when during Reverend Nichols' sermon, a bomb was detonated across from the parsonage and near the church. Horry Watts wanted the congregation to know he wasn't finished. And there were four more bombings, the last one on December 12, 1976. Robert Nichols was hospitalized again for two weeks for mental distress. Rebecca noted that their Christmas was ruined. After 10 bombings and the deterioration of her husband's health, Ramona Nichols called the ATF agent, Charles Mercer, to the parsonage and begged for his help. He told reporter Wayne Drash that he assured her he was doing everything he could, and she said, quote, he's going to kill us. Mercer said he drove away and remembered thinking she was right. It was painful for him to recall these events because he couldn't protect her. Not long after this, he received tape recordings from an informant. He had Watts on tape offering the informant $19,000 to kill Robert Nichols. Mercer had another federal grand jury convened, but justice moved slowly. The Nichols family had an unexpected offer of help in the spring of 1977. A man who introduced himself as the Grand Wizard of the KKK came to their house and told the Reverend they knew what was going on and who was doing it, and they thought it was wrong. We're ready to take him out, this man said. The Reverend later told his daughter the man said, quote, Nobody has to know. Just give us permission, and it can all be over once and for all. Reverend Nichols politely declined the offer, saying, I appreciate this, but we're dependent on God to take care of Mr. Watts for us. By the spring of 1978, Ramona and Bob's families were both begging them to leave Sellerstown, but they refused. Rebecca was seven years old and Daniel was three, and she points out in her book that Sellerstown was the only home they had ever known. Ramona's mother told her, that she and Ramona's daddy would pay their moving expenses. But the preacher's wife was resolute. 
she said no. Ramona's mother had told her this after she called her one spring day to tell her that she had taken on a friend and her baby. Sue Williams needed refuge from her alcoholic and abusive husband. Sue was a close friend of the family and had even taken vacations with them. Wayne Drash of CNN reported that Harris Williams owned a battery salvage shop and also considered the Nichols family friends. He said that the families ate dinner together a couple of times and that Ramona often picked up groceries for them if she had to go into Whiteville. Drash also reported that Williams gave Reverend Nichols a pickup truck. But Ramona and Bob were well aware of the abuse Sue had endured from Harris. He had already been convicted and served time for assaulting Sue. He was the type to get into a rage when drunk, strike out, and then tearfully apologize. Reverend Nichols had reached out to him many times trying to help, but he always fell off the wagon. Wayne Drash reported that Harris Williams had been stabbed in a fight a week before and he had been drinking heavily ever since. Sue had to leave him. And Ramona would not turn her friend away. Sue even went to free welcome for Wednesday night services with the Nichols family on March 22nd. On the morning of March 23rd, 1978, she went to his probation officer and turned him in. That evening, Bob, Ramona, Becky, and Daniel sat around their dinner table with Sue and her baby. It was the Thursday before Easter. Pat Sellers saw Harris Williams being dropped off at the parsonage. She said she heard him tell the driver, I'll see you after a while. Harris was armed with three revolvers and 61 bullets when he entered the Nichols' home at around 5.30 p.m. Rebecca remembers that her father was about to say grace as her mother was standing refilling tea glasses when Harris burst in the door. She said she immediately recognized him and she knew right away something was wrong. She said Sue looked shocked and panicked, but her father spoke up first and said, How are you doing, Harris? He replied, Not too damn good. Rebecca said her father slowly stood up and said, If you are going to curse in this house, you can leave our home right now. And at that, Harris pulled out a 38 caliber pistol that was tucked in his waistband and fired at Reverend Nichols. He hit him in the right shoulder. Bleeding heavily, Rebecca saw her father turn and take steps towards Harris. She thought later that he meant to tackle him and disarm him. But Harris yelled, I told you to back off, and shot Robert again, shattering his left hip. Robert fell to the ground as Harris spun around and aimed the gun at Ramona, who was still standing by the kitchen table. Rebecca said Harris stood about seven feet from her mother, who was crying out, Jesus, Jesus, when he fired a bullet into her chest. The bullet pierced her heart, and Rebecca said she watched her mother stagger backwards and then down the hall. Ramona Nichols was trying to get to the phone. Rebecca said at this quote, our training kicked in. She and her brother dropped to the ground and crawled under the kitchen table. After years of bombs and shootings, these small children knew to drop down to the floor quickly. Sue Williams had been screaming and rushed to her husband and tried to calm him down. But he took her and their baby to Rebecca's room and locked the door, holding them hostage. Three-year-old Danny had left the room as this happened, going to look for his mother. When Rebecca saw him walk back into the kitchen, she whispered to him to get back under the table with her. She asked him where he went, and her little brother said, I saw Mommy. And then, probably from shock, the little boy closed his eyes and went to sleep. Bob Nichols then asked his little girl to go check on her mama. He couldn't stand up or walk. Terrified, Rebecca recalls walking slowly through the house before finding her mother in her parents' bedroom. Ramona Nichols had taken the phone and tried to crawl under the bed to call for help. Her legs were sticking out, and Rebecca could see blood and hear the busy signal coming from the receiver of the phone her mother held. She tearfully went back to the kitchen and told her father that when she called to her mother, she didn't answer her. She said he then closed his eyes and said, Becky, I need you to get help. You've got to be a big girl. 
You've got to run as fast as you can to Aunt Pat's house. Tell her to call the law. And Rebecca did run. She had to run through a cornfield that had just been planted that was about the size of a football field. And then she had to wait at Aunt Pat's while the police and ambulance went to her house. She said she later found out that Horry Watts was standing in the street watching. Before long, a news crew showed up, and in a surreal moment, Rebecca had to watch as the reporter explained the hostage situation. He said that Robert Nichols was in the ambulance, and did not say Ramona's name, but said a woman had been shot and killed. Harris Williams held his wife and infant son hostage until 9 p.m. that night, when he finally surrendered. He was taken into custody and charged with first-degree murder and assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill. Bob Nichols was still in the hospital when his wife, Ramona, was laid to rest. There was a funeral first in Sellerstown, but then she was taken back to her hometown of Bogalusa, Louisiana, and buried in the Ponema Cemetery. When Robert Nichols was released from the hospital, he, Rebecca, and Daniel moved back to Mobile, Alabama. The family went to live with Bob's parents, Rebecca's grandparents, and she tells of their heartbreaking grief in her book, The Devil in Pew Number 7. Recovering from the loss of a parent is terrible, but one loss to violence is horrific, and Rebecca writes that her father was never the same again. Five months later, they traveled back to Sellerstown for Harris Williams' trial in August of 1978. Eight-year-old Rebecca took the stand and told the jury how she watched Williams shoot her daddy and then her mama. Harris Williams was convicted on August 11, 1978, of second-degree murder and assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill. His defense blamed the incident on heavy drinking. He had been binge drinking and had only gotten an hour of sleep before he entered the Nichols' home that day. But policemen who took Harris into custody that day testified that he did not smell of alcohol. He was sentenced to life in prison. Harris Williams may have pulled the trigger, but everyone knew that Horry Watts had to have something to do with it. ATF agent Charles Mercer would not let go of the case against Watts. In June of 1980, Horry Watts was indicted by a federal grand jury and charged with two counts conspiracy to detonate a series of bombs in Sellerstown, and conspiracy to violate civil rights, specifically freedom of religion, due to the bombings at the church. He originally pled not guilty and hired one of the best attorneys in the state. His trial was presided over by Judge Earl Britt, a longtime friend and associate of Horry Watts. He had once represented Watts and another man back in the 60s on a family legal matter. Britt should have recused himself from the case, but he didn't. Along with Horry Watts, Bud Sellers, and a woman named Frances Powell were also indicted on one count of conspiracy each for the bombings and one count of violating the civil rights of the Nichols family. Agent Mercer testified at the Watts trial, but the star witness was a man who had come forward and said that Horry Watts offered him $100,000 to kill Robert Nichols in a staged automobile accident. After this, Horry Watts decided to plead no contest to the conspiracy charges. He had also been charged in a separate case for making threats to a woman named Hazel Ward. And he was indicted on one count of using the U.S. mail to make a bomb threat to her. For all three charges, he was only sentenced to 15 years in prison. And then, Judge Britt, reduced his sentence to five years, and the papers reported he told the court, quote, The ravages of time and events have taken their toll. I don't think we have to worry about him doing anything else to anybody. Rebecca Nichols Alonzo writes in her book of how demoralized her family was over the light sentence. Her father never recovered. He walked with a limp and spent time on and off in psychiatric hospitals before he died in 1984 at the age of 46, just seven years after his beloved wife was murdered. Rebecca was 14 years old and had lost both of her parents. She did the best she could to keep her head up and help deal with her nine-year-old brother's trauma 
her aunt Dot, on her father's side, formally adopted Rebecca and Daniel in 1986. When Rebecca was 17 years old, she got a phone call. Her aunt answered and told her it was Horry Watts and that she didn't have to speak to him. He had left prison after serving only four years. But Rebecca said she wanted to talk to him. She said he spoke in a deep, gruff voice and said, quote, I can't live the rest of my life without knowing you've forgiven me. Can you? It had been ten years since this man had terrorized her family and destroyed their lives. But Rebecca answered, Mr. Watts, we forgave you a long time ago. He told Rebecca he had gotten right with God in prison. She said the old man cried and said, quote, I'm so sorry for everything I put your family through. Your father was a good man. He also promised to set up a trust fund of $10,000 for her and her brother for college. But Rebecca didn't use the money for college. With the help of her aunt, grants, and loans, she got a degree in interior design at Missouri State University and bought herself a car with the money from Horry Watts after graduation. She never saw him again, though he wrote the family occasionally. And Horry Watts died in 1991 of cancer. In 2005, Rebecca was married and living in North Carolina again when her husband searched the internet for Harris Williams and found out he had been released in 1999 with five years of parole. He had served 21 years. It was a hard pill to swallow. But once again, Rebecca Nichols Alonzo chose forgiveness. She was raised by a devout pastor and his wife who believed in the forgiveness of God. She had been taught in her church and in her home to forgive people who wronged her. When her book, The Devil in Pew Number 7, came out, the community of Sellerstown was shocked. Many did not know all of the details of Horry Watts' long years as the kingpin of the small community. And people in Columbus County did not know the full extent of his involvement in the bombings until Alonzo's book came out. A librarian in Whiteville named Ann White told Wayne Drash that they could not keep copies of the book on the shelves for long. She told the reporter, quote, You can't believe it. His obituary read like he was the king of the throne, like he'd never done anything wrong. And then this comes along. Pat Sellers, the next-door neighbor to the Nichols family, the woman they had to run to after every attack, tearfully spoke with the CNN reporter and said she had to forgive Horry Watts like Rebecca did. Quote, The only way for me to make that journey is to have those same traits of forgiveness, of love, of trying to understand people. One person who could never forgive or forget Horry Watts was ATF agent Charles Mercer. He told reporter Wayne Drash that half a dozen witnesses against Watts died mysteriously before they could testify. Mercer was always focused on Watts, not Williams, who was the man who actually shot Bob and Ramona Nichols. And no one ever really asked why until Wayne Drash, reporter for CNN, traveled to North Carolina to talk to Harris Williams. Harris Williams took the blame himself, apologizing, and also blaming his alcoholism. But he also pointed the finger at Horry Watts. He did not testify to this at his own trial, but in the 2011 interview, he said that Horry Watts goaded him into it by saying that the pastor was having an affair with his wife. He said that one of Watts's men, a man named David Fowler, came to him on the morning of March 23, 1978, and told him, quote, Your wife is sleeping with a preacher. I was going down the road a while ago, and I saw your wife in the car with his arms around her. Harris said after a few more drinks, he decided the preacher had to die. He said he later knew his wife and Reverend Nichols were not having an affair, but it was too late. Corey Watts had sent one of his henchmen to light the fuse on Harris Williams. ATF agent Charles Mercer had believed Watts had influenced Williams and wrote to the parole board on his behalf. Horry Watts may have asked Rebecca for forgiveness for the reign of terror he brought on her family, but he never admitted to having anything to do with the shooting. 
When Wayne Drash called his son, Lee Watts, he refused to comment on his father's involvement, but he did say, quote, It's like a pile of manure. The more you stir it up, the more it stinks. This stuff is over and done with, and we need to let it lie. And then he hung up the phone. Harris Williams told reporter Wayne Drash that he would like to meet Rebecca and apologize in person. A year later, he got his chance. Rebecca and her husband flew to California and appeared on the Dr. Phil show, where she and her brother Daniel talked to Harris Williams face-to-face. Both Rebecca and Daniel said they had forgiven Williams years ago. But Rebecca pointed out that at every holiday, Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day, and Father's Day, she has to grieve again, and she has to forgive Williams again. It isn't easy, but it is how she was raised, to love and to forgive. That is her parents' legacy. In the CNN article, she explained how her forgiveness works. Quote, Sometimes, when people forgive, they feel like they're saying that what the person did was okay. That's not what it's doing. When you forgive, you're letting go of the pain and giving it to God. Rebecca and her family live outside of Nashville, and she travels and speaks publicly about the terrorism and tragedy in her childhood and about the power of forgiveness. I am always in awe of people who have lived through something so horrific and still have the strength to forgive. But in telling these stories, I have noticed the same reasoning, whether they are religious or not. They feel that in order to have peace, they have to let go and forgive. They cannot move on with their lives if they are still harboring hatred in their hearts. Southern Fried True Crime is written and produced by me, Erica Kelly. The original graphic art is by Coley Horner, and Southern Fried's original music is by Rob Harrison of Gamma Radio. Southern Fried's audio is edited and mixed by Chaz Gray of Gray Multimedia. I urge you to read Rebecca's book, The Devil in Pew Number 7. The first-hand detail of her childhood memories is astonishing, and she writes beautifully. It is available in print, audiobook, and on Kindle. And there are many YouTube videos of Rebecca speaking. Don't forget to subscribe to the other show I narrate, Fetal Abduction, a true crime podcast. And I'd like to remind you to come join my Facebook group. We share memes and have a lot of laughs. It's a really fun community, and we'd love to have you. Hashtag, no shit asses allowed. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and please tell a friend or rate and review on iTunes. I'm also on most large platforms like Stitcher and Spotify, as well as Stitcher Premium, where you can listen ad-free. If you have any case suggestions, please email southernfriedtruecrime at gmail.com. I do not accept case suggestions on social media private messages. But please feel free to reach out by email. Not only do I get my most interesting and little-known cases from listener suggestions, I love hearing from you guys. Until next time. Thanks so much for listening. Wash your hands, stop touching your face, and y'all take care. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.